Well, good morning, everybody. Happy 2017. Thanks for being here this morning. My name is Jared Kirk. I'm the founder and lead pastor of Renewal Church. So glad that you guys are with us. And um, this was uh, actually the first week in um, that we've been working on something new for kind of a while, which is that um, uh, Leah and Emily have been working hard, and they are the ones totally responsible for pulling off this week in terms of music. So can we thank them for their hard work? And I, I mean, that was just awesome. It was just so good. We believe very deeply in the idea of apprenticeship at Renewal Church, um, believing that um, it's not about paid staff members doing the work of ministry, but that every person in the church has a ministry given to them by God. And when you step into that God-given role, you make an impact and a difference and you have purpose and um, you, you help serve other people and change people's lives. So thank you to, to you two for doing that today. Okay. Uh, you heard that we're talking about money. So if you'd like to flee for the exits now, we're going to lock the doors in about five minutes. I'm just kidding. That's illegal. Um, I promise it won't be painful. Let's see how it goes. How many of you have been in the city for under five years? Show of hands. Under three years? Uh, under a year. Anybody under a year? We got a couple. Okay. Um, I moved here four years ago, and I had an incredibly common experience, which was I went looking for an apartment. And I moved here from a mid-sized city in the south, where my, I had a, a four-bedroom house uh, on three-quarters of an acre, and my entire mortgage payment was around $1,000. Okay, so I moved to the I moved to the city, and um, we were we were going to start Renewal Church, and so we wanted to find a an apartment re- relatively close to the church in the neighborhood. We felt like Jesus came to be with people; he didn't stay far off, and so we felt like it was important to move into the neighborhood. And you guys know where the church is in the center city, and so we started looking for apartments. And I looked at the prices on Craigslist, and I thought that can't be right. <laughs> There's no way that that's legit. I mean, I mean, this was four years ago. So we, our budget was like, like 2,500. It was so much money, right? It was like this astronomical sum of money. And I was like, these must be luxury apartments. They must be beautiful, like stainless, just amazing. And we go look at them and they are these rat infested, um, lead filled, um, death traps of apartments. And so I'm like, okay, we got to, we need a new plan. So we go on Craigslist and we start looking for deals, which is a bad idea because you know the answer to this. Every good deal on Craigslist is a scam. Thank you. Um, and so we found a couple of those. We eventually found a place that we really liked. But in Boston, there is a fee associated with your apartment that a um, realtor gets paid for doing absolutely Nothing. And so, it, you know, that's not illegal according to the FBI, as strange as that is. So, um, so we go and we get this um, deposit for our apartment. And it was more than we had put as a down payment on our first house. And we put the deposit down. Here's the check. Okay. Let go of the check. And when the guy gets the deposit on the apartment, the realtor comes to us and says, oh, I just talked to the landlord. He, he actually changed his mind. The rent is going to be $300 more a month. So I said, you know actually where you can stick that check? Um, in the trash can. You can tear it up in, in the trash can. I'm a pastor. I wouldn't do that. Come on. You guys are terrible. What were you thinking? Um, so we moved. Eventually, God provided this place 
for us for an insane amount of money. Um, but it came in on budget in the neighborhood. And whenever people move here, they have some kind of horror story similar to this, of finding a place and the cost of it. Um, and you, if you've been here for a couple of years, you have this experience where friends come to you and they're telling you about this and you try to warn them and they just don't listen. They just, they can't, they have to suffer through it for themselves. The reason this happens is because the city amplifies everything. When you live in a city, it amplifies absolutely everything, especially impact, especially opportunity, especially temptation. The city amplifies everything. And this is so true when it comes to money. If you have the opportunity to make a lot of money, you can make a lot of money in the city. If you're struggling with money, you can be really struggling with money in the city. If you think housing is expensive, where you come from, when you move to Boston, housing is astronomical. Money can be a challenge. Money in the city can seem like an impossibility. That's why we called our series Money in the City. We thought it was great. I went, I went home. I said, Heather, we came up with this series title. It's called Money in the City. She says, sounds like sex in the city. And I was like, ah, dang it. So we're going to claim it was on purpose, and eventually we'll do a, we'll do sex in the, series, in the city as a series too. So we'll just claim it was on purpose. We're talking about money in the city. And looking at some of the unique challenges that arise from living and managing our wealth well. How do you live generously when 50% of your income goes to housing. Have you ever gone online and just Googled how much, what percentage of my income should go to housing? You know what the answer is? Yeah, it's like, it's usually around 33, 38 maybe if you stretch it a little bit. How do you live generously when housing is 50% of your income? What might generosity look like if you live on student loans? That's a unique question. We've had people in our church who live off of, off of a stipend from their parents. Well, what is that supposed to look like? Man, I would love to have that problem. But some people have that problem. What, is, what does that look like? Um, maybe a, an even more important question. How can the very, very rich and the very, very poor be a part of one integrated family in a church? Because where I grew up, dude, I grew up in the suburbs, like um, like Pleasantville or I mean, it was just like the, the suburbs, this beautiful place. There weren't really many poor people where I lived. It was Everybody was just middle class. But in a city, the very, very rich and the very, very poor live in the same neighborhood oftentimes. How do we live together as a family? When, we, when the rich and the poor and the middle class and the student coexist in the same space and in the same family. These are all questions that deal with money in the city, and they exist on top of very basic questions about money that all of us have to wrestle with and deal with. How do I make a budget? How do I deal with debt? And if you're a Christian in particular, hey, we're in a church, so if you're a Christian, you're wondering, what does God say about money? How does the gospel message change how I view money and resources? This is a lot. This is a lot. And I don't know that we can address every single thing, but I wanted us to at least start on that as a church, to look at these things together. We can begin to unpack what God says about money. And we're going to do that in two ways. One way is by a weekly teaching series that will last for four weeks here at Renewal Church. 
where we look at gospel themes. And what does God say about our heart attitudes towards money? What does God say about the way that money um, affects us and impacts us personally and the way that we should view that? But we also wanted to match that with Financial Peace University. Because Financial Peace is a Dave Ramsey class that, it, honestly, it doesn't deal a lot with the heart issues. But it does, it, it does walk you through. Here's how you make a budget. Here's how you get out of debt. Here's how you invest money or buy insurance or save for the future. And so we just felt like as a church, it's not fair to people to say, you know, God, God desires for you to manage your money well according to his principles. Good luck with that. We felt like it was important to do both things at the same time. So um, we actually have a sign-up sheet at the Next Step Center where you can get more information about that class. You're not signing up for the class. You're signing up to get more information by email. So consider doing that today if that's you. We have a goal as, of a church in 2017 for seven people to get out of debt completely so that they're free to be generous in the way that they, would, that the way, the way that they desire to be, the way that God calls them to be. Um, so... What we're going to do today is we're going to look at one parable of Jesus, we're going to unpack it together, and then we're going to spend the next four weeks actually in this one parable. But before we dig into the parable, I have to say one last thing. I know there's a lot of disclaimers this morning, but we're talking about money, so give me a break. There is no gotcha moment in this series. There's no four weeks of talking about giving and generosity, and then all of a sudden we're saying, hey, we're having a big day where we're all giving. There's just none of that. There's no um, teaching about money, teaching about money, and then, hey, the church is behind, but there's just, there's none of that. There's no gotcha moment in this series. There's no giving campaign. We're not moving into a building, sorry, set up crew, to burst your, shatter your dreams. It's not secretly about fundraising. It's not a giving campaign. In fact, our church is slightly ahead of budget for the year because, as we say, we have a generous church. And the faithfulness and generosity of our church means that our church is funded and we live within our means. So this series is not about raising money for our church. It's not. We may do that someday. Maybe if there's an opportunity, we want to get a building or something like that, we may do that. Or we want to plant a church. We may do a giving campaign for that. This is not that. This is about joy and freedom that you will experience as you manage God's resources God's way. Every single one of us knows the pinch when you have managed your resources poorly and you've managed your your money poorly. Or you haven't and you just don't have any. That happens too. You know the stress that comes in your life. You know that sort of anxiety that builds that tightness in your chest, that feeling in your stomach? Sometimes it's hunger. (laughs) Or even when you have a good income and you have a good job, but you're just in debt and you feel like you're a slave to that. When you manage God's money according to his principles, you gain joy and freedom. That's what this series is about. That's what this series is about. So... Let's look at the parable from Jesus and look at the big picture of what Jesus has to say about money, about stewardship. Will you turn with me in a Bible to Luke chapter 19? If you don't have a Bible with you, grab a black one on a seat nearby. It should be bookmarked with today's passage. It's Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 28. What we're going to do is it's long. It's a parable. It's a story. We're going to work through the entire thing, and I will, I will make some comments as we go along. So let's just dig into it. 
As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So this is obviously Jesus speaking. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. A mina is about a pound and a half of gold. Let's see, $1,100 an ounce. If my math is right, it's about $22,000 today. My math could be wildly wrong. It's just a disclaimer. It's a lot of money. Imagine someone handing you just a pound and a quarter of gold. That'd be awesome. Here, this is for you. And the master says, the nobleman says, get to work. So he says, here's my money. I want you to invest my money. I want you to put my money to work for me so that when I come back, you've earned a profit for me. So this introduces the idea of stewardship. Stewardship is managing someone else's wealth for someone else, on someone else's behalf. And we get this. This is what a, um, this is what a financial um, planner does or what a broker does. You know, if you have someone managing your finances for you and you say, you know, here's my money. I want you to invest this. And you say, here's $100,000. Let's use a big round number. You say, go invest this money. That person doesn't take it and go, awesome, I have $100,000 now. They say, no, this is your money. I'm going to invest it for you, make a profit for you. That's what the master does. It's stewardship. It's someone else's resources on someone else's behalf. Verse 14 continues, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So I want you to notice that there's three parties in this parable. There's the nobleman who leaves to get a kingdom. There's the servants entrusted with money and there's the citizens who hate him. So there's actually three characters here. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained or profited by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So the first servant's a good steward of the money. He takes what's entrusted into him, he invests it, he takes 10 minus, he turns it into 10 more, and when the master comes back, he rewards him. And I think that this is really fascinating here, that he's rewarded not just with money, but he's actually rewarded far beyond what his own performance could gain him. If, you know, if somebody gives you $20,000 and you turn it into $40,000, you're a pretty good investor, But what the master gives him is so far beyond his own ability and power. He rewards him according to the riches of the master, not the abilities of the servant. So he takes 10 minus, turns him into 10 more, and the master gives him 10 cities. He gives him authority and responsibility. And in the ancient world, if you're the governor over a city, you collect a portion of the taxes. So there's a financial reward that's included in that as well. So the first servant is a great, a great steward. And the second servant came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid, kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So this last servant does nothing with it. He, he hides it under the mattress, effectively. 
wraps it up, buries it, and then he blames the master. Do you see that happening? He says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So he says, everything you've given to me, I've done nothing with it, and it's because of you. Verse 22, the master, he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? So the nobleman here flips the script. He says, uh, he calls the, it's not about the character of the master, he actually calls the servant wicked. It's not about the master's character after all, is it? It's about the character of the servant. The, the matching parable in Matthew, the servant is called lazy. And, and there has to be some element of that, right? Because the master saying, the, the nobleman is saying, in essence, you know, you could have taken the money I gave you and gone on a walk. And gave it to the banker. And then when I came home, you go on another walk, you take it from the banker with interest, and you give it back to me. But you didn't even do that. And so this is really not about my character, is it? There's really something about you that failed failed to honor me and my request and failed to manage this well. He didn't even walk to the bank. So verse 24 continues. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. There's a final reckoning. There's a a final moment of accountability where each person has to present to the master what they've done with what they've been entrusted. And he gives rewards or judgments accordingly. I want you to notice something important about this parable before we unpack the main idea of it, which is that it happens right before Jesus goes to Jerusalem. You notice that in the first and last verses, it said... Uh, as he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And then the last verse, it says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. This is Jesus going to Jerusalem where he will, he will endure the cross. It's couched in the middle of Jesus' teachings, which are recognized by basically all biblical scholars from the, from the most liberal possible biblical scholars to the most conservative biblical scholars, that part of Jesus' core message was that after he departed, he would return. It was a part of Jesus' self-understanding, his teaching about himself. This parable is told in that context, that Jesus is departing for a while, but when he comes back, there will be an account given, that there will be a reckoning given. The parable is all about managing the resources God gives you on his behalf until he returns. This is a parable you're supposed to find yourself in the middle of, surprisingly. It's a parable about noblemen and kings and enemies and servants, and we read it, and then all of a sudden we find ourselves right in the middle of it, of this departed king who gives, uh, who gives minus to his servants until he returns. And in this we find the main point of the parable. 
that whatever God gives you, you must manage it well for the glory of God. Whatever God gives you, you must manage it well for the glory of God. And that's what we're going to unpack over the next three weeks. Whatever God gives you, you manage it well for the glory of God. Whatever he gives you. You don't worry about what he hasn't given you. Do we work hard with our hands? Absolutely we do. Do we try to uh, get a job that makes more money if we can't make enough to provide for it? Of course we do. We do all of those things. But whatever he gives us, we manage it well. And I'm just afraid that because we we're, uh, live in America and we're an American church, the statistics would suggest that we have not managed well what God has given us. You know, I, I, I looked a little bit online this week. The numbers vary widely, but the average credit card debt in America is somewhere between five and $10,000 per household. So the, the low end of that is $5,000. And if you just, if you just um, condense that down to um, people who hold debt, it does skyrocket from ten dollars to $15,000 per household. If you take that number and figure out the interest payment on it, so just what people are paying interest on their debt, and you multiply it by the 70 people in our church, you know, just saying that we're average Americans, it would, it would mean that um, our church is paying $90,000 a year in interest. It's the difference between funding Visa's kingdom and funding God's kingdom. So whatever God gives you, manage it well for the glory of God. Um, we often manage money for our own glory, don't we? Money for us can often become about how we're perceived, how we're seen, whether we've achieved, or if we're successful, or whether we're respected. And this can be true of all of us, and in your own life, it can kind of ebb and flow, right? This is not something that I'm immune to. As a matter of fact, in a moment of great pastoral transparency, I'll, I'll tell you, in, in my community group, I've, I've shared this before, this is a big one for me. This is a big one for me. Because I grew up in a home where we were expected to achieve and succeed. My mom had this famous line she would always tell me. She would say, Jared, you're a smart kid. You can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. You could be a farmer if you want to. Of course, farmers don't make a lot of money. And you'll probably like making a lot of money. I mean, I, she, she said that to me multiple times as a kid. And so there's a piece of me, you know, where it's like leftover from my family. And it's like, if I'm, if I'm doing well in this life, then I've got a lot of money. And if I don't, it must mean the opposite, right? So we manage well. What God gives we, we man, us, we manage it well for the glory of God instead of the glory of me. That's the big idea. And over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack exactly how we do that. But today, I want to end with why. Why should we do this? Why should we manage well? Whether you're a Christian or not, why on earth would you manage well what God gives you for the glory of God? That's not what anybody else in Boston does. (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed. That would make you sort of an oddball. Why do it? Why manage it well for the glory of God? Well, the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And it turns out 
that if you don't master your money, your money will master you. And money's a hard master. When you turn to money to prove yourself, hmm, if money says about you, I'm something, I've made something for myself, I've achieved something, I'm respected, I have success, if, you use, if you're using money to justify your worth and your existence, then you become a slave to money. You have to have it, otherwise your self-worth crumbles. And money becomes a driving slave master over you. You let money speak your self-worth into existence when you do that. Money either says you're important or you're not important. Money says you've achieved or you haven't achieved. Money says you're a success or, you, or you're a failure. You let money speak your worth into existence. But freedom comes when what Jesus says about you is more important to you than what money says about you. He absolutely sets you free from money as a slave driver. Money might say, I've made it, I'm a success, or I'm worth something. But the big problem with that is that money lies. Here's the deal. When you run to Jesus, and you ask Jesus to be your life, and you ask Jesus to justify your existence, and you, you care more deeply about what Jesus says about you, and you understand... I'm a sinner who's used money to prove my worth, but I don't need that anymore. What I really need is the Savior to prove my worth. You gain freedom. Jesus would say, the proof of your worth is how much you cost. But your net worth, if you're a Christian, is not measured in dollars and cents. Your net worth is that you've been bought, you've been paid for. By the precious blood of Jesus. First Peter says, It was not with gold or silver that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. When you let that truth determine your worth, it sets you free. Money can be just money. It's not your respect. It's not your success or your failure. It's just money. You can save it. You can invest it. You can give it away. It's just money. You don't have to use it to buy experiences so that you can post pictures so that you look like you have an amazing life on Instagram. It's just, you don't have, there's not, there's not, not a compulsion for that. It's just money. It sets you free. And if you have it, you rejoice and you do as much good with it as possible. And if you don't have it, you rejoice and figure out there's a God in heaven who's going to provide for you anyway. That's freedom. That's peace. And my hope is that over the next, four year, the next four weeks, we can learn this together. And let that truth sink deep down into you. The love of Jesus sets you free from the love of money. So that money can be just money. And your worth and your value can be determined by the precious blood of Jesus.